my mom and dad made it clear that they required a, a certain standard from me and my sister, kind of a standard of respect that, that not all of my peers were held to by, by their parents. It was always, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, no back talking, no smart mouthing. Uh, you don't correct your parents ever or any other adult for that matter. If I ever got in trouble with a teacher at school, I was wrong, the teacher was right. It was just a given. I wasn't allowed to disrespect my parents in any way or any other adult. Some of, some of my friends were allowed to talk back to their parents, and when I would hear them do it, I would, I would think, are, are you, do you want to die? I mean, I just didn't understand. This was like a concept that didn't, didn't work with me, and I'd be astonished when their parents let them get away with it, and, and, and which explained why they did it, because they let them get away with it. One of the things that made us different was that my parents had an unwavering commitment to, to church attendance. So Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday nights. There were no exceptions to this. There was this uh, we were always going to be there. It was a non-negotiable. And I remember one time in, I think, either late junior high or high school, trying to uh, test this, to, to negotiate this. And my best friend, uh, his parents had some friends who had a yacht. And it was about an hour away from where we lived. And they invited me to go out for a Friday night to stay the night. And then we would come back Saturday. And after we got out there, my best friend's family decided they wanted to try to stay an extra day. And I did too. And so I called home to my dad and asked, if I could stay that Saturday night. My dad said, are you going to be home in time for church? And I said, well, I was hoping that you could record it on video. In our small town, we were on our local cable channel. And so I said, I was hoping you could record it. I'll watch it later. My dad said, you can't record the Holy Spirit. You come home. And I came home. <laughs> and that whole family came home. Because we were going to church. So it didn't really matter what everybody else was doing. They had what they did. We had what we did. If our way was irritating or inconvenient to us or somebody else, that didn't change what was right and good and true. And it was really consistent. And so I just got used to being, in certain ways, different from, from other people. How many of you have ever lived in the, the tension of being different from everybody else? If you're a Christian, you have a family and you have a father who requires there to be a contrast between you and the rest of the world. How many of you have ever felt the conflict and maybe even some resentment over the difference that's required of you? And maybe if not resentment, maybe just, maybe just weariness that there's this constant conflict over having to be different in certain ways from the world around you. Sometimes you just wish you could relax a little bit and stop hassling with all the hard things and conflicts that following Christ seems to, to require of you. You ever feel that kind of a thing before? I think that potential for weariness with the contrast uh, between us and the world. I think that's exactly the kind of thing that Paul means to address in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
in verses 10 to 17. If you're not there yet, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. But here the contrast is focusing on Timothy in particular and some false teachers. Paul has been focusing in this paragraph on this contrast between false teachers who were infilting the church at Ephesus and Timothy, who is not a false teacher. He's a, he's a faithful pastor and a true teacher. And the first part of the chapter says that in those last days, those last days are going to be marked by godlessness, and some of the ungodly are going to creep into the church, pose as Christians, and try to deceive God's people. That's what false teachers do. And so Paul's warning Timothy. But in this paragraph, Paul says twice to Timothy, but you, they're going to do this, but you are going to do this. And so there's this, there's this contrast here. And Paul's saying that there's going to be no shortage of wolves trying to devour the sheep. But you, Timothy, you have followed a different way. You have followed my way of life. And you need to continue in the truth that you've learned from me. So that's what Paul's doing in this last half of, of chapter 3. But he, he's indicating to Timothy that if he's going to do this, if he's going to stand steadfast in the gospel truth, in contrast to the false teachers, he's going to have to realize that this involves three different things. And this is where we're going. This kind of faithfulness, in contrast to the false teachers, requires persecution for the truth, perseverance in the truth, and preparation by the truth. So persecution for the truth in verses 10 to 12, perseverance in the truth, verses 13 through 15, and preparation by the truth, verses 16 through 17. So first of all, persecution for the truth. Everybody look at verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You can see the sentence begins with you, however. But literally, it's Paul saying, but you. These godless people are living one way, verses 1 through 9, but you. And it's a singular you because Paul's focusing on Timothy, who's the pastor there in Ephesus. In contrast to those false teachers, Timothy, you've been faithful to follow my way of life and ministry. That's what Paul is saying to him. And so to follow means that Timothy has conformed his own beliefs to what Paul teaches and preaches. That means that faithful pastors follow the apostolic standard. False teachers don't. That's the contrast between Timothy and the others. That's how you know the difference between a faithful pastor and a false teacher. One follows the apostolic standard and the other doesn't. The ones that follow the standard are the ones you can trust. The ones who don't follow the standard are the ones that you should have nothing to do with. And so Paul affirms Timothy's faithfulness to follow that apostolic standard. And he, he does it in nine different areas. And I'll go quickly through these. He, he says, first of all, teaching. You have followed my teaching, which refers to the truth of the gospel that Paul teaches. That's all he's talking about there. And it means that Timothy believes and accepts that gospel, not another gospel, 
not some other message that's being brought to them by false teachers. Timothy believes Paul's gospel, which is the gospel that Paul received from Jesus. So my teaching is the apostolic standard, but also it involves his conduct, which literally means Paul's leading. It's talking about his way of life. And so it's not just that Timothy follows Paul's beliefs, but also he follows Paul's behavior. He doesn't just believe right, he's living right. And he's patterning his ministry after Paul. Paul says, you followed my aim in life, which is really that that phrase, aim in life, translates a single word that means purpose or like a, a plan. And he's probably talking about Paul's purpose in ministry. And he's saying, Timothy, you followed that plan too. What I was aiming to do, you aim to do. Faith. He followed Paul's faith, which means absolute trust or dependence upon God. Patience. That refers to Paul's ability to bear up under provocation, to forbear and, and have patience towards others. Timothy followed Paul's patience. Paul doesn't respond sinfully to persecution and suffering. Timothy doesn't respond that way. He follows Paul's patience. He follows Paul's love, which is the characteristic Christian virtue. It's the first fruit of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, it means you, we love one another, we love our neighbors, we love our enemies. Paul says, Timothy, you followed my love. You followed my steadfastness. That's a term that means endurance. It's the ability to hold up or to bear up in the face of difficulty. And, and really, this endurance anticipates the final two characteristics that Paul brings up in verse 11. Because look at verse 11. So you followed all these things, but you've also followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So he's, he's talking about persecution here. And, and you know what persecution is. This is any kind of a program or process designed to harass and depress someone. And in, in the biblical context, it's, it's usually for the sake of their faith. And he's saying, Timothy, you followed my persecutions. And he, he uses the plural because this didn't just happen one time to Paul. Go back and read the book of Acts. Almost every place he went, he went it seems like, he was being persecuted. It was just a continuous part of his, his ministry. And then he says, you followed my sufferings. And the sufferings are the result of the persecution. It's what the believer has to endure because of being persecuted. In this case, the believer being the man of God, the preacher. And Paul specifies, this is really fascinating. He specifies instances of persecution in his own life during his first missionary journey that you can read about in Acts. And he says that Timothy has followed those kinds of persecutions and he names them. The ones that happened at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And so you can go back and read in the book of Acts in chapters 13 through 14. Paul goes to Pisidian Antioch and it says they persecuted them. He has to, he has to leave town and he goes on from there to Iconium. And it says in Iconium they tried to kill him by stoning him. He, he escapes from Iconium and he goes on to a different city in Asia Minor, not far, called Lystra. And in Lystra they got him. Some Jews from the previous two cities caught up with him, stirred up the city against him in Lystra. 
And it says in Acts 14, 19, that they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now think about what it means that they stoned Paul. That means they throw big rocks at you until you die. And they don't stop throwing them and pelting you and hitting you until you're laying there unconscious and they think that you're dead. And that's what they did with Paul, and they left his, what they thought was his carcass, laying outside of the city. But he wasn't dead. Paul gets up in Acts chapter 14, and he goes, guess what he does after this? He's got a lot of chutzpah here. He goes back into the cities that persecuted him, and he starts preaching again. And he goes there, and it says that he strengthens and he encourages the disciples, and he tells them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So it's significant when Paul says that Timothy has followed Paul into that kind of persecution. That means that Timothy was willing to follow Jesus to the death, just like Paul was willing to follow Jesus to the, to the death. Timothy was a different kind of a person. He was willing to suffer, and that's what set him apart. But lest we think that this kind of suffering is just for pastors, Paul says what he says in verse 12. It's not just you, Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not just the itinerant preachers going through pagan Greco-Roman world. All who desire to live godly. Because it's not just first century Greco-Roman world that has worldly people and a worldly system set against God and his purposes. It is everyone in this age that are set against God and his purposes. Persecution and suffering are not the exclusive preserve of the pastor. It is the lot of anyone who desires to follow the Lord Jesus. Jesus told us it would be this way. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing your own cross means following him to the death. If you're not willing to do that, if it comes to that, you can't be his disciple. So this is the expectation. You can't be a real Christian if you're not willing to enter into this. And so Paul is saying that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Think about that. It's, he says not some people, all people who desire to live godly. All. Now some people hear that and they object, really all people? You know, I know lots of Christians who aren't persecuted. Does that mean that they're not really Christians? I mean, it's kind of an obvious objection. Well, there really aren't any exceptions to all here. I think he means all. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if a person isn't going through persecution that they aren't really Christians. If they are really Christians and they're living peacefully, it means one of two things. They haven't experienced persecution yet, but their time will come. Or it means that they've misunderstood what the Bible means by persecution. We tend to think of persecution solely as, as intense forms of suffering. Physical suffering, perhaps, even the suffering that leads to death. But, but the way the Bible speaks about persecution is different than this. In fact, Jesus himself taught about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Really fascinating here that the persecution consists of reviling and saying evil things about the followers of Jesus. And just saying bad things about Christians fits under the category that's called persecution. That means that persecution doesn't always mean extreme cases of physical suffering that could lead to death. It means any form of mistreatment for the sake of the gospel. That's what persecution is. Any form of mistreatment of God's people for the sake of the gospel. And that mistreatment could range anywhere from saying evil things to being put in prison to losing all of your possessions or even to physical suffering and and to death. So persecution, you should think of it biblically as as along a spectrum. And we should be honest here. Now, we, we live in the United States of America, 2016. Any persecution that we might experience is, is obviously on the easier end of that, of that spectrum, persecution spectrum. What we go through in terms of mistreatment can hardly be compared to brothers and sisters around the world who are losing their lives, whose families are losing their, their lives for the gospel. Nevertheless, as long as we live in the world, All of us, all who desire to live godly are going to meet opposition. And we're going to meet some form to some degree of mistreatment because of our devotion to Christ. Our experience may not be as intense as other people's experience, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we're going to experience it. And also we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that even here in our context, Our situation is changing. We've been accustomed to being on the light end of the persecution spectrum. I would argue that our our, our culture is changing. And we're moving up the spectrum. Even now. In the last several years, we've seen situations of persecution elevate in in our nation. Maybe some, I'll just give you one example. I could could name a, a ton of examples, but just one example Maybe some of you heard about the Storman family in Washington State. They own a pharmacy. It's a family-owned pharmacy. And they refused to sell certain drugs in their pharmacy that they thought caused spontaneous abortions. So they're Christians. They believe thou shalt not kill, which means human life is precious from conception to natural death. And so you don't kill people unjustly they're they're christians that's what they believe so they didn't want to sell these certain drugs that they believe to be abortive abortive fashions well the state of washington said you sell the drugs or you face the consequences so this family sued the state for relief 2012 a federal court said man you can't you can't uh overrun their free exercise of religion And so they won the case. The other side appealed it. 2015, a federal appeals court said, no, they were wrong. you got to sell the drugs. 
go out of business. And just this last June, they, uh, their appeal came to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court denied their appeal. So the lower court stands, the one that ruled against them. And Justice Samuel Alito at the Supreme Court, he wrote a dissent against the court's decision not to hear the case. And he was joined by two other justices, John Roberts and Clarence Thomas. But he said this. He said, this case is an ominous sign. If this is a sign of how religious liberty claims will be treated in the years ahead, those who value religious freedom have cause for great concern. So we're in the, the, the middle of a big contest right now, and our country is changing. What America has been is not what it will be. What it has been is not even what it is now. And it's not going to be that way for you. It's not going to be that way for me. It's not going to be that way for our children. And so here, here's the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is because we need to ask ourselves a, a really important question here. Are we preparing ourselves and are we preparing our children to be faithful when it all comes down against us? Are we going to be faithful to Christ when they tell us that following Christ means giving up your pharmacy? Giving up your livelihood? There are already Americans, Christians, who are facing that choice right now. And if we think that we're exempt from that kind of, what I, I, it's persecution, okay? If we think we're exempt from that level of persecution, we, we would be mistaken. We have no promises of being exempt from that. We have no guarantee that we won't face the same difficulty in the near or the long term. And so the question we have to ask is, will we be ready when our time comes? If we are unwilling to suffer at the easy end of the persecution spectrum, we won't be ready when the persecution begins moving towards the more difficult end of the spectrum. And so what, what I'm saying to you brothers and sisters, I mean, we, think, we need to think kind of soberly about these things. This isn't just pie-in-the-sky stuff. We need to be ready, and we need to be preparing ourselves we need to be preparing our children to be ready for this. And the first step to being ready is to remember all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the norm, not the exception. But Paul says, but the Lord delivered me out of all these things. It's not a sad tale. He knows that, that God has delivered him and ultimately he will deliver him. We win in the end. But in the meantime, we have to be faithful to suffer. And so Paul says to Timothy, really to all Christians, faithfulness, steadfastness requires undergoing persecution for the truth. But the second thing he says is it requires perseverance in the truth. Look at verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being Deceived. Now, I don't think there's any question here that the evil people and the imposters in view are the false teachers. They're evil and they're, they're imposters because they pose as Christians. They're kind of among the church members, but they're not really Christians. And the fact that they're not who they say they are is manifest 
by the error that they teach and the behavior that they perform. And it just gets more and more, their teaching and their life gets more and more twisted over time. And so it says they go from bad to worse. Okay, they don't get better, they get worse. And they also, it says, are, are deceiving and being deceived. And so these false teachers come in, they're trying to convince other people to believe what they're teaching, but it says that they themselves are being deceived. Now, this is significant to recognize because oftentimes false teachers, when they emerge, and they may, maybe they'll emerge in here. Maybe they'll come to Kenwood Baptist Church. Maybe they are here. We just haven't sniffed it out yet. But the thing you've got to know about false teachers is that they're not just deceiving, but they're being deceived, which means they may believe their own error, which means they may be sincere. But we have to keep in mind that sincerity is not the same thing as faithfulness. A person can be sincere and at the same time be sincerely wrong. We don't measure a person's truthfulness by their sincerity. We measure it by faithfulness to God's revealed truth. And that's what Paul is invoking here with Timothy. You followed my standard. You didn't follow what the false teachers were doing. We're different. And so that's what Paul tells Timothy to do in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, I've, I've titled this point Perseverance in the, in the Truth because of this command. He says, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Meaning, continue in following the truth of the gospel. No matter how compelling the false teachers are, no matter how big their churches are, no matter how big their crowds are, no matter how attractive their message is to your flesh... You don't move. You continue in the things you have learned. You don't listen to the deception of the deceived. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. You continue in the truth of the gospel. But then Paul gives Timothy a reason to continue in the truth. Okay, so the temptation is to depart from the truth and go to some easier teaching. He says, but no, here's a reason for you to stay faithful to the truth. And, and the reason is astonishing. He says... Knowing from whom you learned it. Which means you need to continue on because you know from whom you learned the truth. This is astonishing because he doesn't appeal immediately to the character of Scripture, but to the character of the people who taught it to him. Did you notice that? And in Timothy's case, we know who taught Timothy the faith. It wasn't Paul. I mean, Paul came along afterward and discipled him and gave him a pattern. But who brought Timothy into the faith? We know, chapter 1, verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And now I'm sure dwells in you as well. How did Timothy come to the faith? Because of mama and grandmama. That's how he knew it. I've told this story before, but I think it's worth telling again. In 2012, at the Together for the Gospel Conference, they had 7,000 men and women gather together for preaching and three days of, of worship, met at the Yum Center downtown, just this huge crowd of people. There was a panel discussion. The panel discussion included some big-name preachers, 
some Oxford and Cambridge scholars. Uh, Albert Moeller was on it, and John Piper was on this panel, and they were talking about the truthfulness of Scripture, why we should believe in the truthfulness of Scripture over and against all the skeptics who don't believe that the Bible is a reliable book. About halfway through the panel, question comes around to John Piper. Why do you believe in the truthfulness of Scripture? We've just heard all these erudite answers from scholars, pastors. Why do you believe in the truthfulness of Scripture? Piper says, my mama told me it was true. And all 7,000 people in the place laughed. Piper wasn't laughing. Everybody quieted down, and he's, he quotes this verse from 2 Timothy, and he reminds everyone that this is an argument from the Bible. One of the reasons we ought to hold fast to Scripture is because of the character of the people who hold fast to Scripture. Piper's mother was a spiritual hero to him. She was courageous and true in her Christian conviction. She loved her little boy, Johnny, and she loved the Bible. Piper said one of the reasons he believes in the truthfulness of this word is because of his mother. So this is good for us to just stop and think about for a second, mamas and grandmamas in the room. Have you ever stopped to think about the singularly powerful impact that your faithful Christian life can have on your children? Have you considered that even if your husband's not a Christian, so Eunice's husband was not a Christian, Timothy's daddy wasn't a Christian, just his mama. Have you considered how you can make your mark on your child like no one else can? And God can use you to raise up servants who would lay their lives down for Christ, like Timothy? And why would somebody be willing to lay their lives down for Jesus? That Paul would come along later and say, well, because, because of their mama? <laughs> You need to know if you're raising children right now, this applies to mamas and daddies. It applies to grandparents, grandmamas, anyone who's influencing those little ones. But let's just say for now, especially moms, your children, they've never known anyone with your character and love and faithfulness and joy and perseverance. And in their little heart over the years, there's something growing in them that they don't know is growing but it's a love and an admiration for you in a way that they don't have for anybody else. And your faithfulness is going to be an anchor for them so that when the chips are down at some point in their life, they're going to come back to it. And your love for them will bear witness to your love for Christ, and they will follow Jesus because you followed Jesus. Verse 15 explains what Lois and Eunice did and how it impacted Timothy. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. From childhood means from infancy. From his earliest days, Lois and Eunice were teaching Timothy. And they were teaching him the Old Testament. The Bible, it says. He's known the sacred writings, it says. 
Because they planted those seeds, God caused the growth. And Timothy found out that the scripture they gave him was able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy is a Christian because he heard God's word. He heard God's word because of his mother and grandmother. And that word transformed and powerful, transformed them, and then it powerfully transformed him. Verse, this verse 15 is important in our family. It's important at our house because, because of what we do at our family worship. We began family worship when Emily was very small, when she was an infant. And our family worship is really simple. All we do is we read the Bible, and we pray, and we sing. But really early on, but we're, there's six of us now, but when there was just three of us, and Emily was really little, before she could even really talk, um, I started this thing based on 2 Timothy 3, where at the very beginning, we hold up the Bible, and we say, this is the Bible, it's my favorite book because it's the word of God and it teaches us how to be wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And we say it every time. And then we start family worship. And we've said it so many times over the years that even, even I think Lucy can recite it now. But we didn't start that because we wanted our little kids to, you know, we think it's cute for little kids to, to recite things. We didn't do it because we necessarily think it means something to them right now. We started it because we were thinking of the long game for our kids. And, and one day, my little boy might find himself in the place where I found myself when I came to college. Sitting in front of an unbelieving professor with lots of reasons why I shouldn't believe in the Bible. Or my little girl might find herself crumpled up on a hospital bed with a spouse who died too early. Or one of these little ones might find themselves with their arms around a child who is suffering from incurable cancer. I don't know what's coming in the future for them. But I know that they will cry real tears and they will ask real questions about why God has let certain things come into their life. And in that moment, even if I'm gone and dead, long time gone, I want them to look at that book and I want them to say, it's the Bible, it's my favorite book because it's the word of God and it teaches me how to be wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And if the professor or the devil raises the objection, who says that Bible is the word of God? I want them to think my mama and daddy told me. And they didn't ever lie to me. And I believe them. They loved me. And nobody can hold a candle to how they love me. And I'm going to believe them because they told me it's true. I think the Bible's telling us we ought to aspire to that. Are you loving your family in a way that your witness will anchor them when they feel like they're holding on by a thin thread? You have to focus on this. You have to pass this word on to them. 
you have to not only know the word and communicate the word, you've got to live the word. Which means you've got to love them, you've got to control your anger. Preaching to myself here, okay? You have to put their needs before your own. You have to apologize when you're wrong. Sometimes that means you have to apologize to your kids. Maybe some of you are refusing to apologize to your kids when you're wrong because, because of pride, frankly, because you think apologizing diminishes your moral authority with them. You just need to know it's, it's the opposite of that. If apologizing and repenting of sin, in, uh, if you refuse to apologize and repent, it decreases your moral authority with them. It increases your moral authority if you confess and repent. You've got to be humble. You've got to let them see it. If you do that, your kids are going to look back in admiration on their godly mommy and daddy. And if you don't, God is going to have to work in spite of you and not because of you to keep them in the faith. If they come to the faith at all. So the main application of this text is continue in the things that you have learned because you know from whom you have learned them. So we want to be the kind of people that train our children. But we also, when we feel like we're hanging on by a thin thread, we need to remember the people that God brought to us in our lives, that God had transformed by his word and who God used to bring us to faith. For some, that's going to be a mama or a daddy. For some, it's going to be a grandmama, a granddaddy, maybe a pastor, somebody. He's saying, you remember those people and how God had used them and how faithful they were. And you hold fast because they held fast. All right. Persecution for the truth, perseverance in the truth. We are going to save prepared by the truth verses 16 through 17 for the next time, okay? Let me just say this as, as we close. What is the gospel? We've talked about being faithful to the gospel. Well, I just want to say it in clear terms in case there's anyone here who, who doesn't know it. The gospel is the good news that God loves sinners so much that he sent his only son into the world to die for their sins, to take the punishment for the sin for, that we deserve for our sins, and that God raised him up after three days, and he's alive right now, seated at the right hand of God, and he offers eternal life to anyone who comes to him by faith. You can't earn it. Jesus earned it. You have to receive it by faith. You repent of your sin, which means you turn away from your sin, and you trust in Jesus. And the Bible says if you do that, God will save you. And he will take you to be his own. He will make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you haven't done that, you need to do that today. Father, I pray that you would take this word, apply it to our hearts, make us faithful, make us like the Lord Jesus. I pray that you'd save our kids. I pray for wayward kids who are represented by parents in this room. I pray that you'd bring them back to the faith.
And Lord, for anyone in the hearing of my voice who's not a Christian, I pray that they would believe. So Lord, we ask you to do all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.